Well, and, and one of the other things to think about, too, is voting equipment is an extremely, extremely expensive undertaking and something that most election authorities can only do once a decade if they are lucky. The full and free exercise of our sacred right and duty to vote is more important in the long run than the personal hopes or ambitions of any candidate for any office in the land. You're listening to High Turnout, Wide Margins, an insider's look at election administration hosted by Brianna Lennon and Eric Fay. Everyone, this is Eric Fay with my co-host Brianna Lennon. In this episode, we're delving into the world of voting equipment acquisition and uh, the the providers of voting equipment and voting technology. And I would say this aspect of election administration is very crucial for election administrators, and it's something that's somewhat uniquely American in that we have this plethora of local election jurisdictions and almost all of them need to figure out a way to acquire technology in order to tabulate their ballots because unlike places like Canada and France and you know Italy other you know kind of quote-unquote western style democracies where ballots are mostly hand counted hand tabulated in the United States we have very long ballots with many many contests and races with overlapping jurisdictions and precincts and so technology becomes a requirement almost to you know make that an efficient process to get an initial tabulation of votes so there are some minimal federal requirements through promulgated by the Help America Vote Act the voluntary voting system guidelines and those are administered by the Election Assistance Commission and Many states, probably most states, require that voting technology used in, in, in each state in that state meets these federal requirements. Some states have more stringent requirements or some additional testing or you know, certification requirements. Some, ta- some states have less. But in any case, states and counties and cities and local jurisdictions rely on private companies to provide this voting equipment. The process is not incredibly well-known to people because it's such an administrative part of the job. Um, in a lot of cases, when we're going to buy elections equipment, it's similar to when we have to go bid out paper or bid out envelopes. It's just a much higher scale of things, and there's a lot more scrutiny involved. So just as an example, um, well, and, and one of the other things to think about, too, is voting equipment is an extremely, extremely expensive undertaking and something that most election authorities can only do once a decade if they are lucky. And it's still a relatively, in the, in the span of elections administration, the first real purchases of the electronic voting equipment that we use happened in 2005, 2006, when there was a lot of federal grant money infused into the process to upgrade voting equipment. And a lot of local election authorities, up until the last couple years, were still using that equipment that they originally purchased in 2006. So we're now on kind of the second round for a lot of people, especially uh, smaller jurisdictions that don't have a huge county budget. And I would 
include myself in that. We bought our new equipment in 2019. I guess the other thing that I like to point out about voting equipment acquisition is that it doesn't just end when you've bought the equipment. You don't just buy the equipment and then say, okay, I have it. It's great. Let's run elections on it. There's still testing that happens before every election. There's ongoing maintenance that has to be done. There's, um, you know, parts of it that you learn that you love and parts of it that you learn that you don't like and you have to train poll workers on it. And it's a very involved thing. So um, equipment becomes a very integral part of your elections process, regardless of what kind you use. But all that being said, I think what's most interesting about this process is that there are these private companies behind all this voting equipment, and it's a for-profit business. And so election administrators try their best to get the best deal uh, for the tax money that they're spending and to try to understand uh, what they're getting. This is Eric Fay, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri. This is another exciting episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins. We're at the Election Center Annual Conference in Denver, and I'm with my co-host, Brianna Lennon, and our guest, Peter Lichtenheld. So this is, I think, the first time we've interviewed somebody who is in the business of the election business. So tell us what you do, and first, how you got into this, into this role, and how you got into elections. Sure thing. So uh, I was a teacher. I taught for 19 years in Austin, Texas, in the public school system. And uh, we did an election in uh, 2000, rolling up to the 2000 general election. Uh, We did an election for the school mascot. And somebody at the school had a uh, relation that worked at Hard Inner Civic. And they had a new voting system coming out. And the first election they ever ran with that voting system was for the kiddos at the school to vote on the school mascot and I took my kiddos down and they did that and I said that's pretty cool and soon after I called somebody at the company and said hey I'm interested in interviewing for a job there I interviewed for a job that ended up not being on the voting system side wasn't really excited about it I didn't get a job offer and then I interviewed for a job on the voting system side I did get a job offer and I was very excited about the job and became a trainer with one employee so, and I've been at Hart for 21 years since. Nowadays, what I do uh, for Hart InterCivic is I'm the uh, vice president, senior vice president, customer success, like I said, and I tell people, look, the job's kind of easy because it's easy to tell people what I do because what I do is in my title. Um, I'm in charge of keeping customers happy. Um, not that that's always easy, but easy to explain what I do. I'm, I'm that's our jo- my job, is to help my team keep customers happy and help customers have successful elections. Well, one thing I was hoping to accomplish with this interview, and I guess first I should say for full disclosure, St. Louis County, where I am employed, is a customer of Heart InterCivic. Boone County is not. And Boone County is not. So I uh, just want to, I feel like that's a journalistic, like, disclosure thing. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I think more so than talking about Heart in particular, we were hoping to talk about kind of the election business uh, because these various companies that make election equipment or develop software that election administrators use have been kind of thrust into the limelight after 2000. And I was hoping maybe you would talk from kind of a corporate perspective 
how how do you prepare for those things? How do you interact with your customers to deal with those kind of issues? Um, I guess, I mean, maybe to start there, that's kind of what I was hoping to talk about. Sure, that's great. And I, will, I won't advertise, uh, so <laughs> I'll, I'll try not to. Um, yeah, so from the business perspective, I guess I would call it of elections, um, I mean, it is a business. That's what we've decided in America, that a private sector would help us provide the technology to run elections. Um, I always like to say, look, the first person really in America who tried to sell a voting system was Thomas Edison. Um, by the way, he wasn't very successful at it, but you know, we look at him as somebody we respect. An election system provider, I like to call it a provider, not a vendor, because a vendor fills soda machine uh, with Coke. Um, that's not what we're doing. We're providing a system to solve a problem, and that's what Thomas Edison was doing. Um, so we try to look at it from a business perspective, from a market perspective, um, from a needs perspective. You know, what do the customers need to fulfill their duty and to have successful elections in that jurisdiction? Every jurisdiction is different. Every state is different. Um, so we start at the you know highest level, of course meet the requirements of the Election Assistance Commission, meet the EAC requirements, and then go to the states that have market, right, that are interested in buying at that time, right? Doesn't do you any good to build a system for a state, X state, that is not buying voting systems. Um, so then go to states that are in the market to buy. What do they actually need? How far away is that purchase cycle? Um, and try to build something that is the best in the market to meet their need. I think that's pretty much what every voting system provider as far as um, voting equipment, right? Because there's a lot of different things in the voting ecosystem, right? There's voter registration, there's poll books, election management systems, et cetera. So I would say as far as voting system providers, um, that's the way in general we kind of look at it. Have you had any, I mean, we could go really far back, but I'm just curious, after the 2020 election, have you seen a shift in the way that when your customers are states and counties, that they're asking more or from different things from you than they have in the past? No, for sure. I mean, it's changed drastically. So I've been doing this 21 years now. Um, so I've seen a lot of change. You know, there was, you know, I, I would say in the early years when HABA, of course, came. Um, now our system, like, it just happened to be in the right place in the right time because um, we really built it for early voting. Um, and our first system was a DRE. So it was, you know, it was great for early voting. Um, and DREs were really great for election management, right? As far as election management. Can you define what a DRE is? Uh, DRE is direct record electronic. So no paper trail, basically. Um, the, the first uh, DREs were. So they were great for election managers. Election managers loved them. A lot of them now are having a hard time letting go of that concept. Um, but, you know, voters you know, told us, told everybody, hey, we want a paper trail. We want paper in hand. So that's one of the big changes that happened. Um, and, you know, it's kind of ironic, but we literally, as uh, a business, have had to tell our customers, no, 
you've got to get over the DRE. It's not happening. We're not selling those anymore, you know, basically. Um, that it's time for you to move on to paper because that's what that's what America wants. So that's an example of a change. I'd say people are um, way more savvy about their purchases. I mean, just like a lot of other things we buy, right? People are just way more savvy, um, ask better questions, ask other um, jurisdictions before they just rush out and buy. Um, people check your background, right? They check your references. Um, it, they're at, at the beginning, I would say, in the, I guess, like I maybe already said, Hava years, there was like a, you know, gold rush um, to, to buy voting systems. It was just, you know, free money from the federal government without a lot necessarily a kick in the tires and, and thought into it sometimes. Not that there wasn't, you know, for, there wasn't for everybody, but some of the times that, that's how it was. Um, so hopefully that answers your question. No, it does. Hello, I'm Eric Fade, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri. And you're listening to High Turnout, Wide Margins, a podcast where we explore local election administration. I'm acknowledging that you are one of many equipment, so this is from your perspective. But you mentioned that you've had to, you've acknowledged, hard is acknowledged, that DREs are not coming back. And... Um, that we've moved to a more paper-based system. That, I assume, is based on, you know, larger larger forces than your customers coming to you and saying, hey, we've now decided that we want paper. So what drives a lot of the, the thought process of, okay, well, now we're working on the next round of equipment or now we're trying to make improvements to it? What kind of considerations are taught are taken in? Um, when those decisions are being made. Yeah, it's it's huge. I mean, it's it's forward thinking, right? How innovative can you be? You, I mean, you can't be real innovative in this market, unfortunately, right? Because you've got to build something people are going to buy. And what are people going to buy? They're going to buy things that meet the standards. I mean, you have to meet the standards. So what standards are there? What are the next standards? What standards do you build to? What standards are going to be in the RFPs, the uh, request for proposals, that means, uh, the RFPs that come out um, uh, and, um, and from the decision makers in those jurisdictions across the country. So that's really what decides what you build. So you can't, you can't do, you know, if you build it, they will come because you will go bankrupt if you do that. Um, so you have to do what are the requirements how can I best meet those requirements? Um, what do people want? And, and can I build that for a low enough cost to meet the need of that uh, potential customer and be able to sell it and be able to keep my business profitable? Pete, you talked a little bit about the challenge of developing a new voting system. And that's one thing I've noticed in my time being an election administrator is You'll have somebody from the public or uh, maybe a state legislator who has an, you know, an IT background. I used air quotes there. <laughs> uh, and they'll say, and, the, and they'll see some challenge we face. Say, oh, you know, there's, Apple has this, Microsoft has this, you know, whatever the case may be. But like you said, you just can't see a problem with something in the election system and then develop 
a solution for it the next day. There's this whole process. Can you, maybe to the uninitiated or probably to a lot of election ministers as well, can you describe kind of from the corporate side, what does it take to bring not necessarily, not just a new system, but just even a, a fix to the existing system? Yeah, it's, there, it's, it's hard. <laughs> Let's just say it that way. It's hard. And the other thing I didn't even really talk about is there's also accessibility all along the way. A big thing you have to look at, and you know, bad on me for not saying it earlier. Actually, actually, is accessibility because accessibility is also a huge part of any solution you're going to run out there. Yeah. So um, building the system, you know, what are the requirements? How do we build to those requirements? And then um, what is the design of the thing? You know, and how do we best design it? for um, usability for everybody and especially for people with disabilities how do you how is it going to be stored um, how, how the battery is going to work the battery's got to last this long how are you going to charge the batteries are you going to charge the batteries i mean there's just all that stuff how heavy is it going to be how are you going to do if if a certain if some jurisdictions do curbside voting how are you going to do curbside voting how are you going to put on wheels you're going to fly it out there you know what, how are you going to do all this stuff that the end user has to do? Then once you've determined that from design, you know, you got to go out and double check, right? So you got to find customers and say, hey, don't tell anybody, but this is the thing we're thinking about doing next. What do you think? And they're going to say, oh, I love that and I hate that. And you're like, what? You hate that? Oh, we thought you'd love that. No, you got to go back and talk to other customers, make sure everybody hates that, and then you have to maybe redesign that part because everybody turns out hates it. Um, then after you've done all that and decided, okay, this is the thing we want to build, you got to find your suppliers, find out how much it's going to cost to do all those things. Can it even be done? Do your tooling, um, make prototypes, you know, go through um, and start at the federal level getting certified. Once you've gotten, actually got the product, have it, you can build it, it's certified, then you need to go to states and say, okay, here it is, here's the next best piece of sliced bread, and you know, will you certify it? And somewhere in there, depending on the state, you can start selling in that state. In some states, you cannot start selling until it's actually certified. So you, you've like taken this huge risk, it's taken two years, right, to do all that stuff I just said, and then you can start selling. And at that point, you're like, wow, I hope I built the right thing because now I got to pay for all that stuff I just did, which is you know, millions of dollars to, to do all that. So that's kind of it in a nutshell, I'd say. Given all that, do you think that that's a good process? Do you think that the, it should work that way? Uh, since I don't know a better way or a different way, you know, I'm not sure that I can really opine on that. But I do having seen other software systems that did not have guardrails, right? They didn't have the, you know, the, the kitty rails in the bowling alley, you know, which is certification basically. Um, I would say having certification gives a nice structure for things actually. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It cannot be, you know, we can't be faster because of the certification requirements. But I also think the guardrails of certification help because they set standards that must be met and processes that must be followed. So it's a highly regulated industry. It takes a lot of investment and time to get through this certification process and due diligence. 
But then there's only a fixed amount of customers. That's right. There's only so many states and counties in the United like States. 3,600 or something. Yeah, it's a and, very small market. And that's it. And yep. so it's... And people want their equipment to last a long time. So it's not right. even like we're all buying at the same time. That's right. Right. Yep. So you don't see companies like Apple or Samsung or whatever developing voting systems, probably by and large for that reason. So how, how can the United States... How can we maintain a viable private market that's competitive where counties and states have, you know, real options to choose from when it's such a constrained and regulated process? It is a challenge. Right now, there are probably, what, half a dozen voting system companies uh, in the United States, three that are really the the top sellers, the top brands. Um, I don't know how long that's sustainable. Right now, it is fairly sustainable. Um, it is, you know, a, an open market. Um, I think in the best cases, the way it works is the best, the best solution wins. I mean, and that's how it ought to work. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. The best solution wins. That's, that's a good way to do things. Um, the first over the finish line, that maybe isn't always the best way to do things, right? Because um, the jurisdictions want and deserve and voters deserve to have choices. Um, and I think there's a lot to be said for um, voting system companies showing that they have, that they're a good company. It's not just about the product, it's about the company. It's about having integrity. It's about having people, you know, like me who are gonna stick around there for a long time because we believe in what we do. And I would say every voting system company, by the way, we feel like we are helping America to be a democracy, to be a democratic republic, to be the best we can be at um, providing successful elections where the winner won and a recount is going to turn out the same way the original count turned out. So what is it like, I mean, you know, we as election officials have voters that are unhappy have people that voice concerns and things like that what is it like to be one of the companies that gets hit with some of this ire uh, on a national level does that because I, I assume that nobody is calling you all directly i mean nobody's calling like the corporate offices and maybe they are but what what does that look like from the company's perspective it's hard First, I'll say it's hard, just like it's hard for y'all. Um, and you know, we we try to take the perspective of where I first started. I guess this conversation of customer success—that we want our customers to be successful, so and that we have our customers back. Um, so we do actually get direct calls, um, mostly from journalists, and we try to actually be helpful with journalists, but we do check their background and make sure they're actually a, a journalist, right? Um, um, and we'll, you know, we talk to journalists because we want journalists to be informed. Um, if it's just irate voters, I shouldn't say just, if it's an irate voter, um, we check with that jurisdiction the voter is calling from if we can figure that out and we try to let the jurisdiction know about that because we don't feel like that's our place or appropriate. Um, that's for the customer to uh, deal directly and we'll help them with that. Um, and then for the rest of it, yeah, it's customers coming to us and saying, hey, you know, there's this article out there that says these things and can you help us respond to that? 
um, or there's we have a voter asking these questions. Can you help us respond to that? And we do, right? We'll, we and we'll, we've gone to forums to try to help in person at forums to try to educate the public because that's what we have to do. I mean, no matter how tough the road is to do that. Um, you, you've got to try to do that because if you don't educate the public, I'm preaching to the choir here, but if you don't educate the public about, no, that's not a fact, right? That's an opinion that you're saying and you're regurgitating things that aren't true. Here's the truth. If you don't just con constantly do broken record on that, then you never get the truth out there. So we're, we try to help our customers get the truth out there. Kind of the last question I had is, what do you wish like the kind of the public writ large understood about the private industry of elections yeah that's a great question i wish i i think i wish it's a really just a, such a simple thing i wish people understood um that the folks who work for uh election voting system companies election providers we're all, we all believe we're doing the right thing. We all believe we are doing a good deed. You know, I was a teacher before. I felt like I was doing a good thing, right? Teaching kids and helping families. We feel like we're helping voters and we're helping jurisdictions across the America. And, you know, the folks who attack the private uh, sector um, who say, you know, we're hacking or we're allowing hacking or we're flipping votes or whatever, it's like, that doesn't make sense. We're in a business to sell equipment that works. And the thing it's supposed to do is count votes and then report on the correct count of those votes to the public, you, so that you can know who you picked as your leaders. Why would we do anything to sabotage our own business that's not in line with that? So I think that's... That's the gist of it. You've been listening to High Turnout Wide Margins, a podcast that explores local election administration. I'm your host, Brianna Lennon, alongside Eric Bay. Thanks to KBIA for making this podcast possible. Our managing editor is Rebecca Smith. Our managing producer is Aaron Hay. And our associate producers are Abigail Ruman and Katie Quinn. This has been High Turnout Wide Margins. Thanks for listening.